Children's Church with Miss Steph and Miss Rachel. As we look into this uh, passage together, we are in this new uh, section of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 8 through almost the end of chapter 9. As we talk about this idea that Jesus is different, last week we talked about uh, the reality that Jesus is just different in that he is willing and able to heal. He is willing and able to heal. He has all authority and he has all uh, the, the right to because he has purchased it on the cross. And so we come to him uh, in faith and belief to ask willingly for him to heal. Today, uh, we talk about the idea of being worth the cost of coming to Jesus. He's different, and because he is so different, he is worth any cost that it would take to follow Jesus. Kind of interesting because in the midst of this, you have healing. Uh, next week, we'll see things like demons and sin and power over nature. There's all these different aspects that show how different Jesus is. But then kind of right in the middle of all of this is this call to come follow me. Because sometimes if it's just about the things that Jesus can do for us, we miss it. He becomes this genie that we come to just for what we need, although he wants us to come to what he needs. But because he is different, first and foremost, we come to him willing to pay any cost to follow after Jesus. I was thinking about the difference of Jesus, and it brought me to ramen noodles. You're like, this guy is out of his mind. So the, these ramen noodles, you can buy a pack of these for about 35 cents. High quality ramen noodles, 35 cents a pack. I, I uh, lived on these in college. I think if you were a college student in the not so recent past, they, you, you know, whether SpaghettiOs or ramen noodles or something, you know, you're, you're looking for a meal that you can get filled on, up on for, you know, 50 cents to a dollar. That's about the college student's budget. So you live on these things. When you think about ramen noodles, though, <laughs> Three minutes. You look at the ingredients, there's about 120,000 ingredients. And uh, I think all of them are chemically based. It's not the most nutritious and high quality food for 35 cents. But you get what you pay for, right? 35 cents, it puts something in your belly, but it's not going to be the most high quality, best for you, lets you feel real good after you eat it. Now... If you find a good noodle shop, for about $18, you can get an amazing bowl of ramen. That ramen takes three minutes once you get the water boiling to make. A good bowl of ramen, they say sometimes they will work on that broth for hours and hours and hours. Sometimes I've heard that some places may even work on it for days, just letting all of those flavors all of those ingredients meshed together just for the broth, and then they begin to cook it. When you taste ramen noodles compared to an $18 bowl of hard work, love-infused ramen, you taste the difference. And there's the reality that, you know, you get what you pay for. $0.35 cents versus $18 
you may say, oh, I'm going to go with the 35 cents. It's not worth, you know, I, I don't want to pay that much. But if you want something good, right, if you want quality, you have to pay for it. And when you do pay for it and you taste $18 versus 35 cents, you realize it's worth the cost. Jesus is worth the cost. He is the most beautiful, most glorious, most powerful, most loving, most compassionate, most holy, most awe-inspiring one that we could ever begin to comprehend. And we will have all of eternity to grasp how wonderful and glorious and beautiful and amazing Jesus is. And we still won't be able to fully comprehend his worth. You see, when, when you understand the worth of something, when you understand the value of something, you're willing to pay just about any cost. A friend of mine said, people may do something to sacrifice for them, but there's going to be limits. You might do something to sacrifice for me. You might pay a cost for me, and I might pay a cost for you and sacrifice for you, but there's limits. But when we really get a vision of Jesus and understand how worth it he is, how valuable he is, there really is no cost that we're not willing to pay. Jesus is that good. He is that worth it. And so he is worth any sacrifice that we might be called to make for him. This scene starts out with the crowds pressing in around Jesus. Last week, we, we saw Jesus touching Peter's mother-in-law and the fever that she had leaving immediately, and she went from being sick to serving in an instant. And the crowds hear about this, and the whole town comes, and they bring all of their sick and demonically afflicted. Everyone is there. And so it seems very much that this is likely the next day because it says when Jesus saw the crowd around him. So gets up the next morning and there's this crowd. Luke's gospel seems to say that he goes off early in the morning to pray after this encounter at Peter's mother-in-law. And he comes in the next morning and the crowds are there. The crowds are pressing in around Jesus. And so you would think, oh man, things are about ready to take off. The crowds are assembling. There's more to do. There's more of the glory of God that's going to be shown in the power of Jesus. People are going to see how different he is. There's more and more and more and more people. And Jesus does something interesting. He says, let's go to the other side of the lake. Let's get away from the crowds. Let's go over there. And as he gives these orders to go over to the other side of the lake, before he can leave, there are two men that approach him. And they want to follow Jesus. Now you would imagine Jesus is going to hear someone say, I want to follow you. Sure, come along, come along, come along. He wants them to come along, but he says, Two things to these men. They are costs 
that these men will first need to pay in order to come and to follow Jesus. Two realities this morning that we want to consider. Sermon notes are in your bulletin as always, and there'll be some more notes on the screen. But two realities we want to consider as we envision Jesus in his worth, if we are going to be willing to pay the cost. And that is, the first reality is that we must be willing. We must come to a place where we are willing to pay any cost. For this first man in verse 20, it says this. He says at the end of verse 19, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Be willing, as we see from this man, be willing to sacrifice our comfort. The first man was a teacher of the law, and he acknowledges Jesus as teacher. And he says, I am willing to follow you, and I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus. And Jesus responds with this. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, you will not, if you follow me, have a stable, secure place to call home. And he says, even the, even the animals, the foxes and the birds of the air, they have a stable, secure place to call home. They have a comfortable place that they know they are going to be able to return to. But if you come to follow me, you will not. The comfort and security of home will not be there. You know, sometimes people advertise following Jesus as him making your life one of comfort, one of ease, one of wealth, one of power, one of prestige. But Jesus doesn't seem to say that coming after me is going to mean that your life is easy and comfortable, does it? Sometimes we are so inundated as Westerners with comfort that we begin to think that comfort is not a privilege but a right. We are so inundated with things like uh, comfort food options, a, a vast variety of food options, entertainment and technology offerings. I mean, we walk around with a, a phone in our hand that has the power of computers that 10 years ago, we would not have even thought a computer could do some of the things that a, a phone does today. These things that have now just become, we've become so accustomed to, we begin to think that these things are not privileges, these are rights. These conveniences, these comforts, this is hardly the lifestyle of Jesus and his disciples. One where we expect comfort. One where we expect ease. Now, is there anything wrong with any of these comforts in and of themselves? I don't believe so. I don't believe there's anything inherently wrong in them. I like heat in my house. I like air conditioning when it's 95 degrees out. I like having a phone that if I'm in the middle of nowhere and I don't know where to go that I can find out really easily how do I get from here where I need to go. I like these things. There's nothing wrong with them in and of themselves. The issue becomes when I begin to think 
that I am deserved of these things. And when I think that I should always have them, and when they become secondary, or when they become, when Jesus becomes secondary to them, too, to these things. When I would not be willing to sacrifice if they compete with him, if following him would mean I would not go to an uncomfortable place, then I have an issue. It is competing. Comfort should not be expected. Be willing to sacrifice these comforts of life. Second, there's this second interaction with a man that helps us to see that we need to be willing to sacrifice relationships. Verse 21 to 22, another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. The second man comes to Jesus and asks Jesus, let me first go and bury my father. Now, this seems pretty reasonable, doesn't it? But it makes it sound like my father just died and the burial rites, the funeral, the, the celebration of his life is happening right now. I need to go and I need to attend to that and then I will come and follow you. First, let me bury my father. Sounds like his father has already died and this needs to be taken care of. But scholars say that this phrase, first let me go bury my father, was an idea of first let me wait. My father will one day die. And when my father dies, then I will come and follow you. His father is not yet dead. His father is very much alive. And so he has elevated his father over Jesus. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. In other words, let those who are not following me bury those who are not following me. Let those who are not followers, who are not my disciples, let them care for those who are not my disciples. Let the dead bury their dead. But you, you come and you follow me. This seems pretty harsh. But yet Jesus has all, says later in Matthew chapter 10, anyone who loves his father, his mother, his son, his daughter, more than me, is not fit for the kingdom of God. Yet at the same time, we are to honor our father and mother, aren't we? And we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. There is this real need to be able to care for and love the people around us and to honor the people around us. But Jesus is saying, if you don't have me first, above all other relationship, then you have made those relationships more important than me. The cost is being willing to sacrifice the relationships of the people around us. Are we willing, are we willing to make Jesus the most important one over even our spouses, our children, our friends, our coworkers? And the list goes on. Jesus says in other places in the gospel, 
that our love for him must look like hate for all others. I mean, that's pretty intense. That our love and devotion to Jesus in comparison to our love and devotion to the people in our lives should look so radically different, so radically apart that it looks like, man, you're not caring for the people around you even though you are loving and sacrificing and caring for the people around you. It's just, Jesus is asking for such a level of commitment that in comparison, it looks like we don't care about the people around us. Be willing to sacrifice the relationships in our lives. The third area of sacrifice that we must be willing to pay any cost for is being willing to sacrifice our plans. The second man, there was another issue in his life that was keeping him from following Jesus. He was challenged to follow Jesus now. Not tomorrow, not the next day, not next year, not when his father died, but today. So he wanted to follow Jesus on his timetable. He wanted to follow Jesus according to his plan. He was literally, we talk about this phrase, oh, you're going to miss the boat. He was literally about to miss the boat. Because that boat was about to leave from one side of the lake to the other. And he, if he decided he was going to go back, he was going to miss the literal boat. Because he decided my timetable, my plans, my will for my own life, my determination of who gets to order when I do what I want to do. He was in charge. I don't know about you, but that one smacks hard in my face. Because when our lives are so busy, when our schedules are so full, I wonder sometimes if we even have the space or the time or the wherewithal to think about what does Jesus really want for me? Or am I just trying to order my life to get everything done? Sometimes I wonder if we pack our schedule so full and we rush from one thing to the next that we don't even have the opportunity to say, Jesus, you're in charge of my schedule. You're in charge of my plans. And yet, he is the one who we should be looking to, to say, Lord, how do I order my life? How do I order my plans? How do I order my timetable? What do my next, what, is, what are the goals for my next year, my next five years, my next 10 years? What, Lord, do you have for my life and the timing and the plans? What, Lord, might it be? See, all of these, these men came and said, Jesus, we want to follow you. But Jesus says, yes, but you need to understand what that means. There is a cost that you must be willing to pay. Now, the cost that you may be willing to pay, there are other passages. This is one of three passages where Jesus talks about how much of a sacrifice it is to follow after him. Some of these may not be your issue. But the big issue is this. Do you see Jesus as so worth it that no matter what he asks you to sacrifice, that there is no cost that you are not willing to pay?
Some of you may have uh, seen the series, The Chosen. If you haven't, it's just putting on screen the life of Jesus and the disciples. Based on scripture, there's you know, some creative theatrical license that's taken to be able to tell stories that are not in scripture, but be able to help you see the humanity of Jesus and disciples and those things. But in the first season, there is the encounter of Jesus with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And Nicodemus is one of the great teachers of Israel, highly respected. People know him. They see him. They want to be with him. They, he, he, he's developed wealth and power and prestige and honor. He's developed a very good and comfortable life. He, he's off away from Jerusalem as this all happens. And so he and his wife are out of their comfort zone. They don't really like the area that they're in. They can't wait to get back to Jerusalem. But he is hearing and seeing about Jesus. And something is stirring in him as he hears and he watches what Jesus is saying and what Jesus is doing. And you, if you know the story of John chapter 3, in the middle of the night, because he doesn't want to risk from the other religious leaders being seen with Jesus. In the middle of the night, he seeks him out, has a conversation with Jesus. Jesus talks about the need to be born again, talks about how God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, how the world already stands condemned, but how God in the person of Jesus has, sent, has come to reconcile men back and that believing in Jesus and being born again is the way into the kingdom. It's this wonderful passage in John 3 that's captured on screen. And you can see Nicodemus being stirred. You can see hope arising as he's like, I, I, I think this is actually the Messiah, the promised one that I've been looking for and waiting for, the scriptures have taught and I've been teaching about. I think this is him. And though it's not in the actual biblical account, in the actual show, it seems that Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, come follow me. Come follow me. We're gonna leave. Come follow me. To me, it's one of, the mo- one of the most powerful scenes because it's the day that all the disciples, they're leaving their homes for a, a journey, for a ministry trip with Jesus. And they're all leaving their homes, leaving their families, saying goodbye. And they're gathering. And there's Nicodemus around the corner. And he's weeping. He's weeping because he knows deep inside he needs to go and follow Jesus. But he knows that the cost is more than he is able or willing to pay. His wife would not want to go. He would be leaving power and prestige and position. He would be sacrificing everything of comfort and relationship, everything his plans, his timing, everything to come and follow Jesus. And he crumbles, weeping, because he knows he's missing following the one. There is a cost. There is a cost to following Jesus the more we see him for who he is, 
the more we count him as worth more than anything, the more we will be willing to pay the cost. How do we get there? The second reality helps us to get there. And that is to settle the matter in our hearts. Genesis chapter 22. It's a quick summary. It's the story of Abraham being asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. But God in Genesis chapter 12 gives, gives Abraham a promise. A promise that he will bless him. And that he will make his name great. And that he will make Abraham a blessing to all nations. And Abraham hears this promise. And there had to be something that captured Abraham's heart. Because he leaves his home. He leaves his people and he takes his wife and his servants and they go to a place that God has not even told him where to go. Just go. And so Abraham leaves his homeland, his family to pursue this promise from God. In chapters 13 and 15 of Genesis, God expands the promise, telling him that he's going to be given and promises this, this land that we know now is the promised land, this land for him and for his descendants, and that he would make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. The only problem is the land piece, not a huge thing for him to believe, the big piece is his wife, Sarah, is barren and unable to have children. They don't have any kids. So God makes this promise, tells him these descendants will be coming, even though he doesn't have a son. And so along the way, Sarah and Abraham cook up a plan to try to help God out. And that doesn't go so well with Hagar and Ishmael having to send them away eventually because Finally, after 25 years of waiting on the promise to be fulfilled, Isaac is born. Could be argued that Abraham's heart was tied deeply to Isaac. If you're a parent and you have children, your heart is deeply tied to your children. But there's extra layer to this. <laughs> this child is the fulfillment of all of these promises that are yet to come. It's not just my child. This is all of the promises of God are contained in this child. You can imagine how easy it would be for Abraham's heart to be tethered tied to Isaac to where he would do anything for this child. In fact, he 
He even sent away another child for this child. As painful as it was. And so when we come to Genesis chapter 22, that context helps us to see that if we are going to settle the matter in our heart, we have to shift from our heart possessing things. Genesis chapter 22 Verse 1 begins by saying this. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. God tested Abraham. If you read down through chapter 22, God tells him to take his son Isaac up on the mountain that he would tell him about and to sacrifice him. And so Abraham obediently sets out takes a knife, takes fire with him, a servant, takes Isaac with him, and wood on Isaac's back. They go to the place and go out on the journey and go to the place where the mountain that God told them about tells the servant to stay there, and he and Isaac will go up to make a sacrifice. And Isaac asks the question, Father, we have the fire, you have the knife, we have the wood, but where's the sacrifice? Abraham knowing that his son was the sacrifice says God will supply. God will provide the sacrifice. And they get to the top of the mountain. And they build the altar. And Abraham does as God instructed. He lays his son Isaac the one that all the promises of God were wrapped up in, lays his son on the altar. And in verses 9 through 12, it tells us this. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it, bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham replied, here I am. And the angel says, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God. Because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And Abraham turns and he sees a ram caught in the thicket. And there they sacrifice the ram. Calling that place the Lord will provide. Abraham in that moment had to shift from his heart being possessed by things. And we have to shift from our hearts being possessed by things. Whether it's comfort, whether it's relationships, whether it's plans, whether it's our identity, whether it's a myriad of other things, you fill in the blank. Whatever it is that our heart gets tied to and becomes possessive of, I want this thing and I will hold this thing and 
God asks us, will you sacrifice this thing? Because as long as this thing is unwilling to be sacrificed, Jesus is second to it. And that may sound harsh, but what Jesus is actually asking us, the Lord is asking us to do, is to sacrifice us these things so that we might reorient our heart to being possessed by Jesus. Rather than possessing things, owning things, holding on to things, preserving things, trying to have our life built around these things to where Jesus is the central one to our lives and all the other things of our lives are able to be seen and enjoyed knowing that as good as they are, if we lost everything, we would still have him. If we can come to the place where we can say, if we lost everything, but we still had him, it would be painful it would not be easy. It would not for a second would we be able to say, oh, sign me up for that. But we would be able to say, I would still be okay because he is worth it. If I have him, I'm going to be okay. Could we say if we didn't have him, but we had all those other things, would we be okay? If we can say that, then that's a clear sign to us that Jesus is not central. When I was in school, I loved these. Solar system model, spin all the things around. I love seeing that because it helped me visually to be able to see here's the sun and then here are all the planets and how far they are and where they're at in orbit around the sun but I'm sure you know that it wasn't always believed that this is the way things worked right up until the 16th century scientists and the church believed that the earth was the center of the solar system and everything revolved around the earth somehow. But Nicholas Copernicus and Galileo Galilei challenged over time and proved that the earth revolved around the sun. And so revolutionary was this claim that Galileo was declared a heretic. Not once, but twice by the church. <laughs> It so went against what everybody believed that he was declared a heretic twice. Talk about a cost. And yet now we understand, no, that is absolutely right. We are not the center of the universe. And so it is with us. Sometimes we like to put ourselves or the people or the comfort or whatever it is, at the center. And we tether ourselves to those things. And Jesus asks us to flip it. 
to reorient to where he is the center and we revolve and all the things in our lives revolve around him. So as we wrap this up this morning, a couple things of application for you today. The first is this. Maybe you need to settle this issue of worth. Are you convinced that Jesus is the most valuable thing in all of creation? Are you convinced? That may be where you need to wrestle. That may be where you need to be alone with the Lord and say, Lord, there's a lot of other really good things. Because Jesus is not an add-on to our lives. Is he worth it? Is he worth the cost for you? Because he is exceedingly worthy. His value far exceeds anything else. So maybe you need to settle that issue of worth. The second application would be this. I believe that all of us, all of us have something that is competing for Jesus to be central. You may say, oh, I'm fully surrendered to Jesus. And I would just push back on it, and I would say, you're fully surrendered as much as you know to be surrendered to. I am absolutely convinced, as I read of saints of old and as I walk with Jesus myself, that when I think I am surrendered to Jesus, that's when I need to come back and say, Lord, what, what else? Because unless I am perfected on this side of eternity, and the Bible does not teach that we are perfected on this side of eternity, there's always going to be something that competes with him. And so the question for all of us as we journey, and if, if we've been kind of in a place where we're just like, man, he's first. And it's been that way for a while, and he hasn't challenged anything in your life of this thing is between you and me then I would challenge you to get with Jesus and say, Lord, what is it that I am not seeing? Because I believe that all of us have something, something that challenges Jesus as central. The problem is in the church, here's where we, we just look at all the big stuff. We look at all the, the big sins and we look at all the, the, you know, what does money do and this and that and this, all the things that, that we all look at and be like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. And we deal with the big ones. One author talked about if you're going to, to go and plow up a field, you get all the big rocks up. You may say, oh, my field is clear of rocks. You're clear, your field is clear of the big rocks. 
But there's a lot of little ones still remaining there if you're going to fully clear that field. And so often, the way we have discipled and the way we, we walk with Jesus is we just look at all the big things and we say, oh, I've got all the big ones taken care of, all the big morality issues, all the big lordship things, all these big, 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 big things. And praise the Lord, we've dealt with the big ones. And we just kind of put it on cruise control. I'm surrendered. But yet, our intimacy with Jesus just kind of stays stagnant with where we're at. Why? Because there's a lot of other stuff. And he's like, oh, we got to look here, look here, look here, look here. This is rivaling. This is rivaling. And they're usually the things that we don't even recognize. But we've become so accustomed to them that we don't even realize they're rivaling him. And that's where we need deep revelation from the Spirit. That's where we need time in the secret place with him for him to say, there's this. And, and, and he will take them one at a time. Not to condemn us, but because he knows that until we are able to release that, there's things that he is not going to be able to do in our lives. There's hindrances that we're going to have in following him there are lies that we're going to believe. There are fears that we are going to surrender to. There are values that are not of the kingdom that we are going to live according to. There are identities that we're going to take and we're going to hold on to that are not kingdom identities, that are not, as we sang this morning, who he says we are. So there's always going to be more. And that's not to be like, oh, no. Woe is me. I'm never going to get there. It's there's always more, which means there's more opportunity to know the wonder and the value and the worth of Jesus. And if we've settled that issue that he is the most worth it, then no matter what he shows us, we're gonna, our answer is going to be, yeah. We may wrestle with it. We may have to tug a war a little bit with him over time. But, but if we've already settled that issue, he is the most valuable one in all of creation, then yes, we're going to be able to say, yes. I will reorient, I will shift so that you possess that area of my heart and I do not. Beginning on October 11th, we want to invite you into something as a church family. There'll be more information sheets that will be shared in the next weeks, but I want to just put this out there for you that I think this can help us with as a family. We want to enter into a time of two-week fasting from October 11th through October 25th of saying we will sacrifice food or this way there will be sheets to help you see different ways to do fast. Not everyone can do food in different ways for health reasons, but, but what does it look like to, to do this in various ways? But to be able to say, Lord Jesus, you are worth any cost and we are going to sacrifice something so that we might hear from you. So that we might seek your face. So that we might know you more. We have nights of worship and prayer on Wednesdays at 6.30 that are now weekly. And those nights can be times for us as a family to come together as we fast as a family, to come together to seek the face of the Lord, to seek Jesus together. And we would love to have on the 25th, the end date, a gathering where we can come together. What has the Lord been doing? What has the Lord been speaking in these two weeks of fasting? To be able to see, Lord, what are you up to? 
How are you working? What are you doing in us? There'll be more information, but I really encourage you. Jesus doesn't say if you feel like fasting. He says, when we looked in the Sermon on the Mount, when you fast. In other words, these are expectations of the people of God, of the children of God, of followers of his, that it would be practiced. And this is just an opportunity for us to fast as a family together to say, Lord, what do you want to do? What are you saying? Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. And so whatever he shows us to sacrifice, whatever the cost is for more of him, he is worth the cost. Jesus, we do ask for greater and greater vision because you are worth it. Would you allow us to see more and more just how glorious and wonderful you are? Father, I would even pray for those of us who have said yes. We believe you are worth it. We believe you are the most wonderful, glorious one. For new revelation into how wonderful you are. God, I would pray even today for those who may just say, yeah, I've understood it, but I haven't really expanded my view and my understanding of how worth, how much worth Jesus has. God, I pray for an expansion of vision. And Jesus, out of it, for all of us, there's something that I believe you would be saying to us that needs to be sacrificed. Maybe not done away with in our lives, but put in its right place. Jesus, in these days, would you show us where those are? Would you do the deeper and deeper work? Lord, do it in me. Do it in us, Lord. Because you are worth it. Lord, I pray that you would stir in our hearts too a desire to engage in this fasting time coming in October. Lord, that you would begin to place a hunger in us that would be greater than the hunger for food or whatever we might fast from. And Lord, there would be an opportunity for us to, to see with fresh eyes how glorious and wonderful you are, but also see with fresh eyes what you want to do in our lives individually and as a church family. Receive our worship as we lift high your name, as we declare your worth together. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.